This is a story about a girl named Lucky. In closing, these stories have not been embellished because they need no embellishment. They are simply, horrifyingly, the story of my life as a short, stocky, slow-witted, bald man. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, also, my fiance died from licking toxic envelopes that I picked out. Thanks again. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of Roxy Fever. I am your host, Jackson McDonald. With me, as always. Hey, it's Vyasaran. And joining us today is a former NHL defenseman who played for the Vancouver Canucks from between 1989 to 1998. You, it's, uh, oh, you, oh. You, you may remember him from betting on empties such as number 114. <laughs> go, go and look it up now. Yeah, that's good, right? Okay, number 45. <laughs> And favorites like number 92. <laughs> Thanks, me, us. Well, uh, I feel like we kind of blew the joke at the beginning of that, but it's our friend Yerky21. Yerky, how's it going? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great. And if I could do a Finnish accent, I would totally be doing it right now. I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me that, that was like, is he going to be Finnish? <laughs> I had no first idea. time I heard you on. Uh, on Faber's podcast, because I was like, I don't know what his deal is. <laughs> like, why did he? Maybe he's such a big Yerky Twenty One fan or Yerky Yerky Lumi fan <laughs> because he's Finnish. Like, that would make perfect sense. It would make perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, maybe his name is Yerky. Who knows, right? Yeah. Uh, but how are how are things going in your neck of the woods, Yerky? Uh, they they're they're okay. It's uh, vaccines are unrolling for uh, older folks in Quebec, which is like almost here. So that's a good sign. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Yerky is joining us today to uh, tackle a very important and uh, detailed Canucks topic that will take up the majority of the episode. But to start things off, just for context here, it is Sunday evening. March 14th at the time of recording and the Canucks have won four of five uh, great timing as always, you know, kind of right around the time that uh, it looks like the playoffs are probably not going to happen. They've str- managed to string together uh, some victories, but um, Yerky, I guess since you're the guest uh, and you're from Ottawa, do you think the Canucks uh, have like a chance here to, extend their winning streak like i mean i don't i know you're not uh super up to date on the ottawa senators but you are in that area what's your what's your like feeling when it comes to uh this stretch of games that's coming up here well they're gonna have to really do their best to to contain carlson and, and chara it's um <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, wade redden you can't forget about him either there's, there's a lot of talent on that roster you got alfredson and Yashin's there. You don't, you know, he's a sniper. There's um, this new Heatley kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, he's, he's still in Atlanta, I think. In the C- cancel culture tried to stop him. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Marian Hosa, there you go. Um, no, yeah, no, I assume the Canucks are going to absolutely mop the floor with the Senators. Uh, it's like the folks out here are like what Canuck fans should be right now, where they are very realistic about not only where their team should be, but what it is. And so I think there's zero expectations. You know, you, you have the same like hopelessness about ownership, but mm-hmm. 
you know, you don't have like folks taking to Twitter other than like Jack Maxwell numbers uh, to declare the team for real or as a contender or what have you immediately after they, they win a game or two. Well, yeah. And the funny thing with the senators too, is that they all, when they do win, they always seem to win against the best teams in the division. Yeah. It's, it's always that way though, isn't it? Like the, the spoiler is like a, a tradition in the national hockey league. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, I have a question about that. Um, it has racked my brain before, but like when you, when you brought up how Sens fans are more realistic, I would also like, uh, they're also way cooler than us because of like the billboard shit that they've pulled off against the owners, <laughs> the shit that we totally deserve to do, but clearly we do not have the, the, the brave bravery to do it. Also, um, I'll, uh, I'll like start a campaign to put up a billboard about how Aquilini sucks. I don't care. The real estate is way cheaper out here though. You have to do <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You're right. The reason that we've convened today is to discuss basically, I guess, the topic of Canucks luck. And what prompted this is basically a conversation that Vyas and Elliot and I were having, what, probably like three or four months ago now. Do you guys remember this at all? It comes, I mean, it comes up often. I mean, I feel like we've had 30 conversations about are we the unluckiest team ever? And we, we always have new ideas that come up each time. Yeah, and somewhat uh, somewhat serendipitously, Thomas Drance and, I don't know, some other guy from The Athletic. I don't know anybody from The Athletic that's not from Vancouver and isn't like Sarah Sivian. <laughs> um, but uh, they put out that article about like whether it's worse to be a Canucks fan or a Sabres fan because they came into the league at the same time. I'm not sure what even prompted that, but I was uh, absolutely blown away by Tom's poll that the Canucks have the lowest points percentage of all time of any team. And I know Yerke was quick to point out that that probably has a lot to do with the expansion teams that came after them benefiting from things like shootouts and the loser point, but still, and the cap too. That makes yeah. a huge difference. That's, Teams don't, don't get mm, nearly as bad yeah. as they used to. That's still monumental though. <laughs> that that yeah. just like unadulterated without looking at context, Canucks have the worst points percentage of any team in history. They they bottomed out in the eighties, which was, you know, in, in a division with the Gretzky Oilers and the emerging flames. And so you know, they did it back when there weren't loser points. There was no cap. Like they the Canucks could win like seven straight cups and they're still gonna be toward the bottom of that. That's true. Yeah. Mm. So we were we were discussing the idea um, like a few months ago, and I basically pitched it to them as for the Seinfeld fans out there. If you've ever seen the episode, the Andrea Doria, where uh, (laughs) George is trying to get an apartment and he loses out on it because his uh, like his rival for the apartment is an Andrea Doria survivor, which was a ship that sank in like the 80s or something i don't know um i'm what this isn't a history podcast it's uh, i i listened i watched this episode not long ago yeah it, it brings me great joy and uh and so george uh insists that the people who own the building and like manage the building form a panel and hear his life story so that he can prove that actually he deserves the apartment more and um this episode is basically going to be that with like us in the role of George Costanza and then, uh, you know, like the people who are fans of that KHL team that all died in a plane crash or whatever. And the- <laughs> <laughs> are the Andrea Dorcha survivors? Yeah. Um, 
I already ha- I'm going to make the cover art for this episode. I already know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and um, Yerky was kind enough to when I suggested the idea to him because we were uh, planning on having him on for a long time. He was kind enough to like amass pretty much like a full list of all the uh, exhibits A through Z, basically, uh, in our case for why the Canucks are if not the unluckiest franchise of all time, then certainly the worst to be a fan of. (laughs) But before we get to the master list, I thought the three of us, we could just go around in a circle and uh, maybe like just discuss one thing that comes to your mind when you think about Canucks luck and, and something that maybe is particularly galling to you. So I guess I'll just start. I'll start with you, Elliot. Okay, so objectively, the answer has to be that from the moment this franchise existed, they thought they were going to have the first overall pick and then they didn't. <laughs> but that's not as much fun as the real answer to me, which is this team drafts the best players that they've ever had. And then from the period of 2010 to 2012, they lose in the playoffs every time to the Stanley Cup winner. And the time they get closest is the time when it's, they lose a hotly contested series, which comes down heavily to how it was refereed to a team that ultimately had the guy, had the league, what is it, the head of officiating for the league's son on it. (laughs) Just like, of course, this is how this ends. We have the best team, or the best installation of this team in in its franchise history, and it comes down to ticky-tacky refereeing from the guy's son. Sure, okay, fine. I'm going home. Yep. You know what? Uh, I'm just going to say it right now. Official position of Roxy Fever, 2011 was an inside job. Oh, for sure. I I did not learn about the Colin Campbell thing until well after that happened. That was was a huge talking point. I know. I weirdly wasn't online during the finals. I just watched and talked about it with my friends who I was the most learned person about the Canucks, and I couldn't even name you uh, more than like two lines in the team. Uh, anyways, uh, so I only learned about the Colin Campbell thing like four years ago and had been incensed about it. Um, Elliot took my answer though, but I think I'll just say all the guys who died. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, that's a, that is honestly, I don't know, like other teams history with that. Marcus Naslin counts as a guy who died, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I'm sure Yerky is glad he doesn't go by his real name right now. Um, <laughs> the uh, the I, I will say like it's not funny, um, and so we won't spend any time on it. But um, I think like the fact that three guys have literally died while playing for the team. I mean, I think Rippin was technically Rippin um, was signed by the Jets, but I don't think he ever appeared in a game. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like that is. And, I mean, you could probably yeah, bump that up to four because of like Pablo Mitra. Pablo Mitra, which was right around mm-hmm. the same time too. Oh God, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't even think of that, but that's true. Like Pavel Dimitra was pretty much right around the same time, and yeah. like those yeah, were all the team for a year at that point. But, but yes, yeah, yeah. And, and those were all hu- like really. First of all, really sad, and then second of all, it's always sad when a player dies, and I I don't like to look at it through this lens because it sort of like cheapens the the tragedy of it but like all four of those guys in in like three three of the cases actually just very good players 
And then in an in a nut or you know in Bourdon's case, like uh, projected to be a very good player. And then in Rippon's case, like heart and soul fan favorite kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, like I said, don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I think that's um, an obvious one. Uh, my pick is the 2008 draft because obviously we all know if you are a Canucks fan going back far enough, what happened with Cody Hodgson, the nightmare uh, sort of back injury that, you know, originally like the Canucks trainer said he was fine. And then he goes and seeks a second opinion. And like, it turns out that he actually does have this terrible injury and, you know, it totally derails his career. And eventually, uh, you know, he gets traded and just, it never really takes off for him, save for like a pair of half decent seasons split between Vancouver and Buffalo. But the thing that I find the most crazy is the next two picks in that draft, uh, Jan Sove and Prab Rai, both within a few months of each other, get in career altering car accidents. That that's movie shit. That's like Final Destination shit. I want to know like what native burial ground <laughs> they like built their like player training facilities on to have this happen to them. I, I, it's Vancouver, Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair enough. I just thought that was when Dan Kluche came back to town. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is 08 that you're talking about too. So this is right around Bordeaux as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's in quick succession after that. And I mean, they both, I don't know that either of those players were certainly neither of them were guarantees to make the NHL, but you think about how much Mike Gillis in this city is tainted by his draft record. Yeah. Imagine if those, those three guys, I would argue like all had things happen in their careers that if nothing else, your scouting staff can't plan for, and it's Mm -hmm. not their fault. And you, it's like Marion Hosa, but real. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the the fact that you know, within like a few months of each other, Jan Sove gets hit by a car crossing like Granville Street or something, and then Prob Prob Rye is the one that really um, kills me because he was a very good player. As I as I mentioned to you guys earlier, like Beach went back and ran the uh, the numbers and he had like something like a 25 percent shot of or rather not a 25 percent shot, but 25 percent of his like statistical matches went on to make the NHL. And most of them were like kind of like second line, second, third line, like tweeners. So like a guy who would have been a good for piece for this team and just specifically like how that relates to how Mike Gillis is seen in this market. Like if he hits on those three players, Jim Benning is probably never general manager. I, I don't know if I go that far, but uh, especially given that, like I, I've always made the analogy to the, uh, the Simpsons episode where Homer gets banished from Moe's for unscrewing the top of a salt shaker when, when his friends have been doing like dangerous <laughs> stuff and like setting Mo on fire and stuff. Cause there was that lack of patience for Gillis that apparently other general managers do not suffer from. And so if, if it's, that's all it took, then at some point Aquilini was going to get mad about the salt shaker anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a entirely very, that's fair. A very good point. He uh, had a lot by of that point, like would him. Benning have been available or would some other team have hired him? So we would have still gotten Boston management. I think what is like you're probably the, right. Uh, honestly, the, the smell because, is what they wanted of that. Because I think you're 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 right. Like that was probably 
I remember, you know, people, this has all been memory hold now, but like Boston model. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's a thing mm -hmm. I must have heard hundreds of times the years between like 2014 and 2016. Like, I don't like to use the word cuck a lot, but that was very much cuck energy. Absolutely. But that is, yeah, I was going to say, that's underlying Canucks like psychology and ideology, which is like you lose in 94 to the Rangers yep. and then you yep. go to sign Mark Messier. You lose to the Boston Bruins in 2011. You hire a Bruins AGM and you draft Nikita Trampkin because he's your Chara. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's true. Which I think we could use as a segue to another topic. We certainly could, but I, I'm going to uh, just say to, to put a pin in that, what I was getting at more is that I do think that Jim Benning uh, being hired you have to see as like an overcorrection for what we're what was yeah. like yeah. seen as the faults of the Gillis years and drafting is such a huge part of that. And if the Canucks get three more perceived successes out of their drafting over Gillis's tenure, I'm not sure that it's that Benning's status as a scout is as much of a selling point when they go out and get him. But yeah. As Vias said, you still got the Boston model thing. So maybe I'm maybe I'm overselling it, but uh, still. I, lo I love the idea that general managers are sitting there like scouting sixth round picks and like personally responsible for everything they scout them up with. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that too. I I've um I've never understood that to be honest with you. So um I guess with that out of the way, Yerky, where do you want to start here? Uh, Elliot actually dug into one fact that I think people always have had an inkling about, but no one's really put together data on it. And as you know, I actually did, which is getting or facing the Stanley Cup champion, the eventual Stanley Cup champion in the playoffs. Now, typically, it's not really a question of luck per se, because obviously the champion eventually knocks everyone off. And so losing 2-1 is hardly a market distinction. Yeah, more teams lose to the champion than any other team because the champion knocks off more, teams. more, yeah, most, and, and it makes it hard to compare against or across different eras too, just because you had different playoff formats and different numbers of teams making it in. But there's always been a sense, I think, in the Vancouver fan base that often with some of the Canucks' better teams too, or at least the ones that looked more poised to do some damage in the playoffs, that they happened to run into the the one team that they really couldn't have run into and that also happened when they were good because uh, one of the things on my list too is in both 2011 and 2012 they faced literally the worst possible first round opponent for them even though the Canucks were the, technically the top team in the league in 2011 Chicago was not a true eighth seed they'd been submarined by bad goaltending for half the year and were probably the second best team of the conference by the end of the year mm -hmm. and the following year the Kings according to all the analytics folks the Kings were, were actually the best team which is weirdly fatalistic about the playoffs uh, quite unusually so I think but uh, they, that was like the opponent the Canucks did not want to face so that that is kind of an example of that happening to a good Canucks team but when the Canucks were decent or maybe even not that good but maybe had a chance to do to win another playoff round than they would have because as we know there's sort of been precious little playoff success throughout the team history a lot of that does come down to, to circumstances and who they happen to face and you know through the 80s they weren't making the playoffs that often but they were in a division with Edmonton and Calgary which kind of limited any forward movement that they they maybe could have had but even when you look in, you know, I start, I became a fan of them in the 90s, so that's what I'm most familiar with. And even back then, it, we always felt like if it wasn't the cup champion, it was the, the runner-up that they always seemed yeah. to face. Yeah, I feel like yeah, if you yeah. add that on, it's it, the number is explodes after that. 
which I didn't I didn't crunch the numbers for that, to be fair. And obviously how early you face them would really kind of determine how unlucky you are as well. But uh, the numbers are interesting. I don't, Jackson, did you want to say anything or did? No, I was just going to say, please, please uh, get into that, because I I thought it was fascinating when you sent this to me. Yeah. So I, I broke it down by franchise. So I, I did some splits, too, for like relocated teams, like before and after and combined and all that. Wow. So the, the short answer is we are we are largely right. The Canucks are <laughs> among the teams that have faced the eventual champion the most. Um, there were sort of two, two ways I did this. I said, if you face the team at all, or if you only look at the years that the team was knocked out. And uh, the difference there is that a team that actually won the cup will, will have a difference there because they won't have uh, of course. Right. Uh, you know, especially we're talking about luck, then any team who wins anyway is probably not that unlucky. So I, I wanted to look at more of, percentage of or percentage of times facing the eventual champ per number of times are eliminated yes in the playoffs at all and so by this measurement so with the splits the most kind of unlucky team is actually the original winnipeg jets um which which is fair that makes sense (laughs) and particularly being relocated to arizona which is uh, which is maybe the worst team, like the worst current team to be a fan of. I am okay with saying the original Winnipeg Jets uh, might be like the worst, the worst team historically to have been a fan of. They, yeah. they made the playoffs more often than not because back then you had like four to five teams in the Smythe division making it, and the fifth one was usually the Canucks. Uh, <laughs> and, and so they, 60% of their history in Winnipeg, they made the playoffs. And of those, times uh 55.6% of the time they faced the eventual cup champion which more often than not I assume was the Oilers I didn't really yeah. divide it up but so when it's always when it's really just because the, the best team is in your division that's that's a little bit different I think than kind of having a larger sample size to work with but I, it's interesting second on the list is Columbus but they only made the, the playoffs 31% of their their history of 31.6. So, so again, I mean, it's smaller sample size, yada, yada. Tampa is, is next on the list, which is interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, they still miss the playoffs more often than not in their history because now you have a larger league to work with, but they, uh, they face the eventual cup champs uh, half the time, 50% exactly. Um, then the next one is really interesting. Here's where you get your first really big sample size. Uh, it is the Boston Bruins. And, and uh, sorry, I only looked at years when the Canucks were in the league. So no six teams. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. That's, that's fair. I, I think that's entirely I mean, fair. If you counted, if you had counted the original six years, I would not at all be surprised those the Bruins because they probably lost to the Habs like 60 mm-hmm. times. And but they probably so also still, still lost to the, yeah. yeah that, was, <laughs> that was the 70s was, yeah, the Gila Fleur Habs. Exactly, stuff. yeah. Um, and it, it really must have been, you'd probably have the odd Patrick division team as well. Like they, I remember they played the, the Penguins in 92 in the conference finals. So there's examples like that as well. But yeah, a lot of that's going to be Montreal. Um, interestingly, the very bottom of this whole list, just to, I, I know I'm getting past the good part, but what the most surprising factor to me was the Hartford Whalers never faced the future Stanley Cup champion. That is surprising. That's weird. Imagine being the Whalers and then like everyone being like, no team that has ever beat the Whalers has won the Stanley Cup. And you're like, well, what the <laughs> fuck do you expect us to do? <laughs> What was our option here? <laughs> like not even not even the Islanders in one of those first four years. That's what surprises me. Well, they weren't in the same division, so it, it okay. would have been. Right. You, you think again that that Montreal would have knocked them out from time to time. Like, but you know, when I was a kid, the Whalers usually played either the Habs or the Bruins in the first round because the Nordiques were the ones missing the playoffs back then. Right. Uh, but I guess it was in years when well, neither of those teams was winning cups other than the 
the one for Montreal in the nineties. So I guess it makes some sense. And they didn't, they didn't, they made the playoffs 44% of the time, which again, in a, when four out of five teams make it, that's still pretty bad. Like there, there's a franchise that absolutely gives the Canucks a run for their money in terms of wretchedness and kind of. Yes, sure. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I will say Brian like, Burke led teams. <laughs> yeah. If there's any like asterisk to add to this, it's that like teams that got relocated, that's a whole different thing. Um, yeah. Because yeah. like, those teams were so bad that the the league like wouldn't let them be teams anymore. <laughs> so I'm willing to concede that like teams that have been relocated, um... which means that the saddest fan of all time is Mallory because she both lost the scouts and is a Canucks fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Counts as all that much. So where do where do the Canucks uh, land on that list? So. Th- the, the next two are somewhat surprising. They're, they're Florida and the Islanders. And Florida's barely made the playoffs in their history, uh, which also proves the faultiness of, of uh, the pure points percentage metric. Yes, of who's of the course. worst? Because that's a lot of loser points. Uh, and the Islanders, uh, you know, there's a team which can't really be described as unlucky per se, but I guess in, in their later years, when they made the playoffs, which was still 55% of the time the Canucks were in the league, but you take away the dynasty years and then it's like closer to like 1% of the time because they were hmm. pretty awful for much of the Canucks own history. When you mention a team like that, though, I immediately just think of uh, something Stefan Heck said on RGS like five years ago or something. It was a thing that he used to say quite often where he was like, I would trade every happy Canucks memory over the course of my entire life for pictures of them winning a Stanley cup. Oh yeah. I was born. Yeah. <laughs> well, look how people and, graphed onto the Vancouver millionaires. It wasn't even the same league. The cup was like a challenge competition. It's, it's the equivalent of yeah. winning like, like yes. when the Grizzlies and Raptors used to play for the Naismith cup in NBA preseason. It's like, Oh, hey, cool. <laughs> we won this little like one off thing. Good for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we, when you talk about sad sack franchises and obviously I'm just adding more and more modifiers onto this, but whatever, it's my show and I can do whatever the hell I want. Um, Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. um, I will say that like any team that's won a Stanley cup, fuck off with that shit. You are not the worst team to be a fan of. Like nothing that happened before I was born counts, but at the same time, if you won a cup in the fifties, fuck off. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Because obviously Toronto is, you know, they have the, the ultimate example trail, of this, but they also <laughs> have the second most cups all time. And like, yeah, those cups don't count, but fuck you. <laughs> I think Toronto remains the only example of it because all the other original six have won in the At least league. one. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Weren't the Bruins the last to yeah. not? Yeah, they had, yeah. Uh, they had droughts in 72. And yeah, yeah. Well, so we're getting to, to the Canucks opponents in the final as uh, as another example of uh, of just <laughs> dumbass luck. But uh, yeah, yeah. They, they of course had to face those teams. But anyway, next on the list is the Canucks. So that's if you count the original Winnipeg Jets uh, as, a, as a franchise, then the Canucks, that puts the Canucks in eighth. And if you take up the smaller sample sizes, it's probably closer to like sixth. Yeah. But, you know, that's ahead of most of their peers from those teams who came into the league around the same time, I guess, other than the Islanders. And uh, certainly all the, you know, the Western Canadian teams. And it's, we, we weren't wrong is the long and short of it. Like the team after the Canucks is the full Jets Coyotes franchise, for example. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. And especially with the Jets, a lot of that time, the Canucks just weren't good enough to be in the playoffs, right? So, well, so that's, that's one of the reasons why I say a lot of the Canucks like wretchedness really does come from the eighties. Cause interestingly, the Canucks in their history have made the playoffs 57% of the time, which is like higher than the average Canuck fan thinks 
because they did even when when they're bad again four to five were making it so they they had these like random playoff years where they play like montreal or, or i think they played buffalo one year and like nobody remembers that uh because the yeah. league used to have a different format and and the canucks were also in the east division when they first came into the league because <sighs> yeah but uh but yeah the, i mean since pat quinn came around like the canucks history is actually quite close to normal They've had good times. They've had bad times. Like they're not nearly as bad as we kind of make it sound as fans. But you you can never shake off the '80s because that's when the top rivals did all their all their damage, right? And then they lorded over us to this day. I looked through the Canucks historical like season by season record before we did this just for for some context because like I know hockey and Canucks history like from the '90s on pretty well, but going back any further than that we start to get hazier and hazier but one thing that blew my mind is for their first like 20 years in the league they only had like a couple of seasons with a winning record which yeah, was they, pretty yeah, they, wild. They, they, they had 1975 where they like somehow won their division and yeah then, <laughs> and it was 91 92 which looked to be it was going to be ended by a strike and that was like the most canuck thing ever it's like they, we finally had a good team and then the players went on strike toward the end of the season and then they had to reschedule a few games and they ended up coming back but uh it like it would have been so typical oh um this reminds me of another thing that was not on your list but that i will uh present as further evidence which is uh the league g- having a lockout immediately yeah. after the uh like very good seasons with very yes. good teams that, yeah that was on my original list Holy actually shit, when i, when I twice. we were talking about it i forgot to include it but yeah the 94 95 lockout was so frustrating because as fans it's the same thing happened the bubble the bubble now fans have this idea that the playoffs are like the true team even though you're talking about like four to seven game samples versus 80 to 84, depending on the length of the season. Yes. And so I think it's kind of all bunk to begin with, but you know, people after an exciting playoff run, like, you know, we all went to BC place to celebrate them almost winning the cup. And like, <sighs> I remember distinctly Sean Antosky of all people saying, <laughs> we're going to be back. And you know, everyone cheers. Cause you, you, you sort of believed it, even though if sure. you look at their aging curve and like the actual roster, like that wasn't at all obvious. And in fact, you know, they just got worse and worse for several years straight. But yeah, the yes. lockout happened at the worst possible time. And then you also had the 2012 lockout, which wasn't the season after, but we're still in the prime years of the, the Gillis Canucks. Yeah. And then also the 0506, was it? No, the 0405 lockout. Like, obviously, the Canucks didn't make, uh, like, they didn't go on a run that year. But like, if you look at the team that we they had the best had, line in the league. Like, yeah, they had the best line in the league. And then if you look at what they achieved the season after that, with the Sedians taking over from the West Coast Express and becoming the best line, like you can, as I have done, because I like to just like sit down and torture myself with Canucks counterfactuals all the time. You can very easily convince yourself that that was their year. Um, which you it's, know, well, you remember famously. I see, you remember because you guys are all children, but uh, in, <laughs> I think I think EA this is all I read, man. <laughs> EA did their simulation for the 05 06 season coming out of the lockout and concluded yeah. the Canucks were the cup favorite. Yeah. And you know, yeah, the, the West Coast Express they had lost a gear from the 02 03 season, but they were still really good as if you had the Bertuzzi thing, so no one really knew how they were going to recover, but people expected it to be good. I'm sure you remember this, but I remember in 05, 06, I was getting so excited the Canucks were back and get, buying all the stuff about how the Canucks, yeah, simul- I, I remember them being simulated to be the winner. And I remember distinctly, there was like a game in November, uh, the Senators and Canucks were playing. 
I think it was in Vancouver and it kept being sold as like the Stanley cup final preview because it was so early in the year and everybody thought uh, the West coast express was going to do it again. And it was like a showdown between the Alfredson line and the Naslin line. Uh, and then uh, the Canucks won the shootout, one of the first shootouts they ever did. And it was supposed to be like premonition for the rest of the year. And like, that was a huge talking point in that in the beginning of that season. I remember also, by the way, it wasn't the West coast express wins of winning that game. It was Daniel city in the shootout. Yeah, of course, which is well, it's actually another like that's, that's weird because that had to be one of only like what three goals Daniel city and ever scored in the shootout yeah. <laughs> against Hashik too. It's so funny to look back on that. I didn't live in anyway. Ottawa yet, so I don't remember that at all. That's another thing you could add to the file is uh, like the shootout being introduced uh, <laughs> right at the time where their best players who were like winning scoring titles were also just happened to be absolute fucking dog shit in the shootout. <laughs> and then their one player who's good at the shootout is also like extremely useless at everything else and gets his back broken. <laughs> and they changed yeah. the rule for him to not be able to do his best move in the shootout. Yeah, and it was really cool. <laughs> We're talking before, about Mason Raymond. Before listeners. Mason Raymond, uh, Yarko Rutu was quite good. Oh, at the yes. shootout. And I always wanted them to try him out. Like you could sort of see it in his eyes, and they, they wouldn't do it until like <laughs> I remember that move. One of those seasons. So, um, yeah, I mean, what we're sort of alluding to, I guess, about facing the worst possible opponent in both. So in 82, the Canucks were a pure Cinderella team. They had a losing record. They, uh, they benefited from the Kings more than anything, knocking off the Oilers and the Miracle of Manchester. And even though oh. the Canucks were actually better than most of the teams they faced in that playoff year because everyone had a losing record. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Except, you know, the Oilers wouldn't have if they had survived uh, the, their Kings series. But so losing to, to the Islanders there was incredibly expected. It went exactly. I know people have all this lore about had Harold Snaps not given the puck away at the end of the game. Like they were getting yeah, no matter what sure. happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. obviously. That, <laughs> Yeah, that was if that. something good happens, they lose 4-1, not 4-0. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it was but, a 1982 Roxy Fever <laughs> yeah, radio yeah. show. But 94 and 2011, I mean, 2011, obviously, they were the best team in the league by a country mile. So anything that happens is like, you know, sort of beating the odds, you know, even going, even not going into the Colin Campbell thing, though. Uh, 94 first, though. So the conference finals, uh, the Canucks throttled the Leafs. And then in the East, the Rangers and Devils were playing. And the Devils were an unexpected good team. They had Jacques Lemaire coaching them. I think it was his first year. And that was sort of the year the trap was like invented. So they were, that's when they sort of forged their boring reputation. They actually scored a lot, which people, I think they were some of like the second highest scoring team in the league. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> but it's still the New Jersey Devils. They were like the, the Mickey Mouse franchise and nobody <laughs> took them all that seriously. So we were all pulling for the Devils to beat the Rangers because not only were the Rangers better, they did, they did win the President's Trophy that year. So it was sort of expected they'd be good, even though they were old. But there, there was no mystique around the Devils. And sure enough, it was, uh, I don't know if it was single or double overtime, but Stefan Mateau scores in seventh game overtime to, to send the, after the game that Mark Messier quote unquote guaranteed, because, you know, because he saw that happening, no doubt, you know, what, what a great leader. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and what's the Rangers were in, it's the kind of thing that we would later say with the Bruins, because the league, mm. I'm not saying there was no fix. There was, you know, it's not that like they were going to, actively do what they could to have the Rangers win. But it was so the Canucks were still a small market team at this point too, keep in mind. The the, the league had way preferred to see the Rangers win and rejuvenate its largest market for a team that hadn't won, won since 1940. 
with Mark Messier wow. at that point was like the most marketable star at that point. Like the Canucks were kind of exciting in their own right, but they were, they were in Western Canada. Like, you know, like hockey night in Canada was like blatantly cheering against them because the Leafs had a chance to go to the finals. Oh my of, God. A yeah. lot of people in Toronto pulled for the Rangers in that final too. Cause you know, for the same reason, I suppose I would, if I were in their shoes, but yeah, um, that's understandable. Yeah. But the Rangers like, so Toronto probably would have been even more lucrative, but the Rangers were the team that the league was just obviously interested in winning. So you have the 1940 mystique, you have Messi, and they're up against a Cinderella team that no one expected to be there because they had finished one game over 500 that year. <laughs> so it was such like, you had, you had everything, and there was no like Gregory Campbell thing, but it, there was, the, if I remember the officiating in game seven was definitely a bit suspect. I think the Rangers had something like three power plays before the Canucks even got one. And the, the Canucks were down to nothing pretty fast. And like, it's crazy. They almost actually came back to tie it, but uh, it to, was... uh, to paraphrase Noam Chomsky, there's a difference between being a conspiracy theorist and just doing institutional analysis. And like, I don't think it's wrong to point out that the league has a financial interest in like one team winning of over it's another. a private business right like exactly we, we, and we that, wouldn't even pretend it was otherwise if it weren't an organized sport yeah and that isn't mm-hmm. to say like i do not think that the nhl is giving orders to its referees go easy on the ranger like obviously that's not no, what's that's happening. not how that works but you do yeah. you you do have to think about like what effect does that have on the psychology of the people that are calling the game. Like yeah, I don't... the refs are, are like Canadians who grew up like idolizing original six teams and players. Yeah. And like, they're, they're human. There's no way they're not cut up by the, the mystique a little bit. Like, you know, they're about to call a penalty. Mark Messier gives them a glare. So they don't like mm-hmm. you know, this stuff happens with home teams, like home ice advantage or home court or field advantage is a yep. very real thing. It's been observed mathematically. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that these guys with every incentive, again, not that they're doing it on purpose, but that it doesn't kind of nudge them. Also, is there? There also, I think, is a thing about referees officiating harsher against teams wearing black jerseys. I'm that's pretty so sure that's funny. a thing. That's, yeah, I've heard that too. I, I, I'd be I curious know, to it's, get it's another small thing to go on top of all that. That are things that like nobody actually purposefully does, but these things nudge, and when enough things nudge in one direction, yeah, that would be so funny if like Mike Gillis on top of like all the sleep doctor stuff and like the mind room and the, if that was the reason they changed their Jersey color, <laughs> was he just like looked at the numbers? About I was going to say it'd be pretty team. funny if it was the uh, flying V jerseys that led to all their misfortunes. Oh yeah. There you go. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was sort of just to, to tie, to tie that up. The, the thing with um, 94 is that um, it could have been any Eastern conference team, right? Like, you know, a lot of dominoes happen for them in the West too. Like the, the Sharks knocked off the Red Wings or the top team in the West. So I mean, it's not like, wow. it wasn't like they got the, the worst possible permutation. But, you know, you think about when the Washington Capitals finally won their cup and, and not to take anything away from Vegas, but they still were an expansion team. And like, you know, the only reason people are picking Vegas to win is because they kept betting against them in the first three rounds. And Exactly. So, yeah, they took three L's in a row. And then they're like, well... Yeah, maybe maybe there's some, but imagine you know imagine what's the equivalent of the Canucks facing like, it's like when when the Panthers made it to the finals against the the Avalanche, which is a mm-hmm. whole other story because that was you know their first year of relocation. But like imagine getting that as your finals opponent instead yeah. of the juggernaut that the league has 
was begging to see win, right? And then in 2011, the exact same thing happened, right? You had you had the Bruins playing the Lightning, and again, Tampa Tampa's developed something of a mystique now, but they certainly, even with their cup win, they didn't have it at the time. Absolutely, they were the like more offensively minded, fun team. It, we all knew, right? Like in real time, we were saying like, "Oh man, the Canucks would do so much better against the Lightning than the yeah, Bruins." Yeah, it was a way yeah. better stylistic <laughs> match. And like, even if the Canucks yeah. were going to lose, it'd be a way more fun series to watch. Yeah, no yeah. one's going to hate like the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? It's not an original six team. It's not a league darling. And uh, and there, if you remember that game seven, it was again where you start raising your eyebrow, right? It, there was not a single power play called in the game, so the Bruins won one nothing. Uh, Nathan Horton scored the goal despite having squirted a fan with a water bottle before, which is supposed to be an automatic suspension. So yeah. it's just again yeah. everything to be conspiring to get the Canucks the worst possible opponent, right? Like you, you could I think even against the Bruins, I've always said I think you could replay those Cup finals like a hundred times, and the Canucks probably win like sixty of them, just because they had so much bad luck in the finals too, and with all mm. injuries and everything, right? Yeah. And they still almost nearly did it. Yep, I think that's entirely fair to say yeah. that, like that, that like if you simulate that or that series over and over and over again, like the Canucks win most of them. You know, I don't know by what margin, but like it's significant. Yeah. And uh, and again, it's like if, if you had to pick one opponent you didn't want to face, they got it both times. They didn't get the the expansion team or the Florida Panthers or like, you know, the, the random Cinderella team. Like they they had to face like basically their kryptonite both times. Yeah. I'm yeah. the one idiot who was like, I hope Boston wins that other I was, series. I was about to say, <laughs> I was about to be like, yeah, who would who would pick the Bruins as their preferred opponent stares at Vias? <laughs> I, I, I wanted the Canucks' first cup to not be one against the fucking team from Florida. The, uh, the other thing from, from 94 is that another thing that was a big deal at the time, like I remember being very aware of it while it was happening, is the schedule they had set, and it wasn't a conspiracy, this was set in advance, I'm sure like oh, yeah. you know, months in advance, but they, there was a two-day gap between game six and seven, and yeah. generally there may have been another two-day gap early in the series, like maybe when they switched cities, I don't really remember, but, but otherwise, it's something to do with, they didn't want to play on a Monday, and I don't really remember why, because uh, it wasn't like football season, but uh, they, the Canucks said they looked dead in the water after game four, right? They, the series is three, one, then they came back in two like really exciting games or game six is considered the, like the most exciting game in team history. And they had all this momentum and their average age was like a couple of years younger than the Rangers who were still kind of the, the, the remnants of the Oilers dynasty. And I, like we, a bunch of us went downtown to party after game six and we were just like high-fiving with strangers. It's like what you would see in like a normal city after you've won, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'm throwing that in there too. The, uh, the only reason the riot happened is because it was a game seven and people thought they were going to win. So they're all primed for it. If the, if the Canucks had lost in five, no one would have cared. Well, they would have cared, but there would be no riot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, so after game six, anyway, we were super stoked. And I remember running into one of my classmates and she high-fived me and she says, we're going to win the cup. And like in real time, I'm like, no, why did you say that? <laughs> like, there's like a crowd of like, you know, thousands of people. I was like, oh, that was enough to do it. And, and then you had the extra day off. And so the Rangers were on their heels. They were tired. They were looking kind of not beaten down, but like, you know, they, the seed of doubt was planted. And then you get that extra day off to recover. And, you know, probably Messi gave some stupid speech. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then they come out flying in game seven in addition to the, the penalty calls. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was the worst possible time for a break in the series when the Canucks were, like, itching to go. So that was, that was one of them, too. 
There's also the, uh, I think you have on one of the lists you sent us, the uh, hit in the post. Of course, yeah. yeah. Everyone remembers Lafayette, but the 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 Martin Angelino one that happened a few minutes earlier was probably even worse because he actually had a moment to sort of control the puck. He had Richter at his mercy, diving, and it happened fast. He kind of corralled the puck and, and fired it. But I, I, you know, at the time watching it, it was like, you just wanted to smash something because it was the game was on his stick. He had the opportunity. And I remember uh, some, somebody, it may have been Drance, actually tweeted about that moment, I think, at some point like early in the COVID pandemic because it was when those games were getting aired again on Sportsnet, I think. And uh, and I like I, I sort of took a, a clip of the video from it because I said, yeah, everyone, everyone remembers Lafayette, but they all forget Jelena. And I posted it. And Mike Beamish, Vancouver Sun legend, uh, responds to me, get over it. <laughs> fuck you <laughs> and, and, and like the, the context of my tweet too is like this bugged me for many years after but like i was saying that i was over it but yeah it's like how do you say how, how do you come back from that like and it's also know? just an interesting thing like even people who like i never i wasn't I was one when 94 <laughs> happened. Like this is new, in- interesting information for me. This actually touches on, and I, I, I'll, I'll say, I'll just preface this by saying too, like every team feels this way. So I'm, I'm not, I, I know why Yerky probably left it off his list because it's so subjective and probably nothing special with the Canucks, but this does touch on uh, another thing that feels very Canucks, which is, getting burned by players that you either traded away or let walk yeah. because yeah. obviously Jelena was the guy who ended up um, being the, the dagger in the heart in what was it? 2000 and before. Yeah. 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 And he had, he had been a hero in O2 as well for Carolina and, and they knocked out Toronto. So I like, I remember being over the moon when that happened. He was, I think it was the same thing in OT hero. It may have been the series clinching goal. And that seems so cool. And then, then he ends up in Calgary, like, Oh, <laughs> this is what it feels like. And he was like a super likable guy too. Right. Like he, he yeah. was a huge part of the 94 run. He, they cleaned him off of waivers that year. And so he wow. was like the true hero. And then Mike Keenan chased him out of town to like make a point or something. Like it, it, it was he was the team MVP the year before. And then I like the Mike Keenan it, years are also another episode of like the Canucks being monumentally well not unlucky but stupid. And it's definitely something that I do not understand as someone who was like a kid and very easily able to tune it out at the time. The words Mike Keenan Gladio are in my head right now. I'll <laughs> I'll do with I'll do with that what I will. <laughs> I'll take some time with Man, that. honestly, it really feels though like the league gave us Mike Keenan on purpose to destroy us. <laughs> I just watched Judas and the Black Messiah, um, and the Fred so, Hampton movie, right? Yeah, the Fred Hampton movie, which is yeah. excellent, by the way. I'm sure, like listeners of this show, if you're like on the fence about it, go fucking watch it. It's really good, uh, especially if you don't know that much about the historical period. But like, basically, like informants and moles have been on my mind a lot recently and it's like oh yeah the Canucks go out and get the coach and the captain of uh the team that snuffed them out in the final in 94 and then just suddenly the team like explodes and is terrible for like the next few years like that seems a bit convenient don't you think (laughs) yeah that the betting thing seems a way worse example of that and like here it's like even a long con where they're like slowly yeah. draining the franchise of all integrity from the inside <laughs> the keenan thing happened you know it was it was a mercifully short period and he had also already fallen from grace at that point right the st louis like 
gave up Peter Nedved for another Canuck connection for the privilege of oh, wow. signing Keenan while he was still under contract with the Rangers, thinking that he was going to lead him to the promised land. And he did like the betting thing where he, he swapped out like all their skill players for grinders. And they like, they had kind of like a, I don't know if it's dead cat bounce because I don't know if they were bad the year before. I don't think they were, but they like actually did overachieve that very first year and sort of sort of Benning's Canucks for that matter. Uh, and then they uh, everything just fell to total crap and like it, it was the same same series of events that happened in Vancouver where everyone hated each other and Brett Hall hated Keenan and and they they like dispensed with him pretty fast. So when the Canucks hired him, it was like after all that, which is even <sighs> more pathetic. <laughs> yeah, Wait, so that that was the Gretzky year. Right? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's touch on that then, because Yerky, I'm sure you probably out of all of us have like the best handle on the the Gretzky story, not the one that uh, Brian Burke just kind of brought up randomly uh, like this week or whatever. But the original Gretzky story for those of us who aren't aware, which is also parenthetically like half me because I only kind of remember it. What is the. Yeah. Infamous Canucks, Gretzky to Canucks story. Uh, so I, I was not in the country while this was going down. So I, it was very secondhand because the Internet was still very new at this point, too. But uh, yeah, the Canucks now had their new ownership in place, which I, I actually think the Macaws get a bit of a bad rap. Like it was it was kind of cool at the start that the Canucks finally had like big money owners because they they were always scraping by as a small market team mm-hmm. until that point. And so I guess the way they were going to punctuate the fact that they had kind of arrived was by signing a, a big free agent. And the Canucks never did this. Like, you know, even when the team was respectable, Pat Quinn did not sign free agents. There were there were fewer of them back then than there are now. But you would never, you know, like now, like every guy who's from BC, every guy that like, I don't know, like once changed planes at YVR, like immediately gets rumored to be coming to the Canucks because it gets, it gets clicks or whatever. That... <laughs> Did yeah. not used to happen. Like <laughs> there was never a time where it's like it's like oh there's a there's a star who's about to to uh, you know finish their contract and I'll bet the Canucks is kind of like it, no one even contemplates such a thing. They were also like 31 when that happened, so it was less exciting as well. But um, but yeah, so the Canucks decided that they were going to make a play for Wayne Gretzky, and I told you guys before this that I don't personally believe that Gretzky was ever serious about signing in Vancouver. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, his going to California was like the, the big symbol of the league having finally arrived as a major sports league. And Mm -hmm. his wife was a model and, you know, probably used to the, the the Hollywood life or whatever. Like I can't imagine him upping and relocating. Vancouver Vancouver. was not a destination. No, it wasn't. The team had come off its first good years, but uh, you know, the most recent year, they're like a game under 500. They were they were not exactly a powerhouse anymore. Just, anyway. just look at a photo of what Vancouver looked like in the early 90s. Even just like a skyline photo. <laughs> like it did not look like a place that had an NHL team. And it was like, it's the second largest English-speaking Canadian city. It's always been important for hockey, but partly because the Oilers and Flames were both like, you know, like the Canucks were never on hockey night in Canada, like never when I was going, well, they were when they played the Habs, uh, they were just, they were a total afterthought of a franchise. And part of that is because they, they did behave as a small market team, right? Like the Oilers had a lot of star power. The Canucks didn't, um, you know, the sort of heroes of the early Canucks are like guys who, who hit 30 goals in an era when like everyone did. And, <laughs> and yeah. so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a destination uh, even, even though the city the city was nice, I can vouch for that. The city was nice in the eighties and nineties too, but uh, it just didn't matter as much. Um, and you know, players didn't care about things like you know, how nice the arena is or whatever they care about now. Right, right. And 
so, you know, having a good team helps and, but either way, having money was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And the Canucks were not a rich team uh, on top of all that. So, so the Macaws brought a lot of early cellular money to the table and uh, decided that they were going to make a play for Wayne Gretzky. And officially, they, he told them that he was ready to sign in the morning. Again, is the official story. I don't know what he really told them. And uh, I want to say that it was like Stan McCammon, I think, who was the team president. Or That sounds right, yeah. Or, or there was like a, there was a little wiki in there at some point too. I don't, yeah. I can't really remember. Um, this is before the the Keenan years where there's a lot of churn too. So I'm the names are getting mixed up in my head. But uh, apparently that that assurance wasn't good enough, and he made George McPhee, who was Paquin's assistant at the time, uh, call up Gretzky like in the middle of the night or something and demand that he sign the contract now. And the story goes that because of that, Gretzky was so put off that he decided he wasn't going to sign. He was like, he was all set to do it, but because right. of that one phone call, he wasn't. And sort of with sober second thought, I think a lot of people sort of feel he was jacking up the Rangers price more than anything. Probably. Yeah. Um, I don't see him going to, to Vancouver. I know he spent the first half of his career in Edmonton, but, but it was I mean, a different I think world. That almost sort of, sorry not to speak over you, but I think that almost kind of informs his choice because he's already, he's won four cups in a small, like at the time, small Canadian market. All right, he's done that. Now it's time to be a celebrity and be the best hockey player in the world and collect the accolades from that. Exactly, and play in the limelight in New York. And I, I don't know, you know, for some of these guys with, with high-profile spouses, like sometimes they don't necessarily relocate to the city anyway. So maybe that was less of a consideration than I'm making it sound, but it just seems weird. It would be like, you know... I don't know, like Austin Matthews signing in Edmonton now or something. Like. Yeah, my my take on this is I do think that if the Canucks offered him the most money, he may have come here. Um, but that like that that was a, a backup plan if the Rangers weren't going to give him what he wanted. Mm-hmm. But it makes the the interpretation that makes the most sense is that he was just using it, the team as a like negotiating chip, but it is impossible not to do an episode on this topic and not point out that, you know, they were trying to get Gretzky and they ended up with Messier, which ushered in an era that is at least ranked (laughs) in terms of (laughs) worst eras of Canucks hockey. I don't know. I feel like we're, I feel like we're getting dangerously close to matching it. in the one that we've uh, all just lived through. This one is way longer and your salary cap is the only thing that keeps things kind of, uneven keel yeah yeah i was gonna say about the gretzky thing also i said in the chat but like i don't think it would have necessarily uh like it seems like a fork in the road we went messier and everything was dark and like could have been gretzky everything could have been great i i i want to like counter that like not that anybody here is arguing that um but i don't think we would have been better with gretzky i mean i i don't think that big of celebrity on the team team like that better during that period of time. But I think long-term, obviously the team was better with Messi because they, well, you got the city and about the city. Mm-hmm. And then also like Marcus Naslin has talked a lot about how Messi taught him to be a good leader, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is absolutely wild to any fan. But Naslin mm-hmm. did blossom during that period too, right? Yeah. Like the mm-hmm. 98, 99 season, he just sort of came out of nowhere from being like this fringe winger. And the team was giving him ice time because they literally had no other options. And <laughs> suddenly, suddenly he became a, a star. But yeah, the, the fact that that ushered in the Messi era, which was very like Francesco Aquilini style Canucks, it's like, oh, we didn't get the first thing I've heard of. So we have to get the next thing I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> which, yeah, you know, I don't yeah. know if it was McCall yeah. personally or his guys or whatever, but it, like, it, it smacked of that even at the time mm-hmm. that, you know, 
Lionel Messi was still a good player. Well, it was on the way down. He was old by hockey standards, but uh, so was so was Gretzky at the time, I guess. But Messi was a little older, I believe, and and never quite as good as Gretzky. So it always felt like the the consolation prize. Mm. Like you know, people kind of yeah. got excited about it because it was still a big name player. And like I said, it never happened back then. But it, uh, yeah, it's just it, it's very Canucks that it should unfold the way it did. Plus, they let Cliff Ronning walk because oh, of other yeah. than Gretzky, and and Ronning had. Uh, Alex McGillney's 55 goal year was because he was playing with Cliff Ronning. They had great chemistry. And oh, goodness. I always forget about that. I, I think the fan, uh, the fan love for the ownership team had Gretzky come in. Would we have had the Aquilinis? Yeah, these are always the. <laughs> this is the thing about counterfactuals is that you can just like butterfly effect. Imagine a better yeah, world yeah. for yourself if you want. You know, Janet <laughs> like, Gretzky getting involved with uh, international shady wealth and tied up with at the same time BMW though, he, dealerships and fentanyl dealer. I don't know. Anyways, uh, <laughs> he also would have been using his platform to like endorse i don't know michael fortier and the progressive conservative <laughs> race or something <laughs> um anyways uh uh what else you got on your list there so Andy? yeah there i mean we haven't even gotten to the draft stuff yet which i guess is oh is yeah that's ones too. definitely where we um, go next yeah well let, let me hit, hit on a minor one that people kind of forget too uh just because of the age of canuck fans on twitter but i mentioned marcus naslin blooming so he, he he first kind of showed up in 88 or 89. I'm getting, I'm, I'm off, off by a decade because I am that old. Uh, in 98, 99, that was that kind of unexpected good year. The following year, he was still like pretty good. He was a 60 somewhat point player. Uh, and then the year after that was when they named him captain and he like exploded in relative terms. Like he jumped up to a, a 90 point pace, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this was the dead puck era. That was like quite a big deal at the time. It was this, the seeds were getting planted for the, the West coast express as well. Uh, you had Morrison was on the team, but like was, I don't think playing with the other two yet. Bertuzzi wasn't nearly as good as he would be uh, the following year, but Naslin himself was a, was a legit star. And uh, they made it back to the playoffs in, in 2001 for the first time since all the Keenan stuff. A, their top players, they're like, I think Marcus Nelson and Andrew Castles were their top two scoring players. Uh, guess who got injured on the stretch drive? Those two guys and Todd Bertuzzi, who had, uh, I think he, he got injured earlier, but he was out for the year with a broken leg. And then, yeah, both Naslin and Castles were gone for their playoff drive. And then that was one of the years where they played the eventual cup champions in Colorado. Yes. It was a powerhouse team who was getting Peter Forsberg back for the playoffs. <laughs> and so the Canucks, it very unsurprisingly got swept in four straight with like, I don't know who is the highest scoring player left in their lineup at that point. Like, like Harold Drugan or someone. Like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> it, that year was brutal. Like I remember that was really the year I like became a hockey fan, at least in the sense that like, it's the year of Canucks hockey that I, the first year of Canucks hockey that I actually remember. And I remember like Drukin scoring the overtime goal. And it really like set the tone for my Canucks fandom because it was like that amazing moment of like, holy shit, they've made the playoffs. I've never seen this before. Cause I'm like, I think I was like seven, maybe eight. And I'd never, I'd never like, been old enough to see them uh, make the playoffs before and then they do it and then they just immediately get absolutely trounced by the avalanche like maybe one of the worst like four game trouncings I've ever seen in my entire life so and and they may not have had that matchup if they had had a better stretch drive too I I don't remember how late the trade deadline was back then but I'm pretty sure it was later than it is now and so 
you wonder if they maybe could have done more to shore up the team. It sure. may have actually been early by that point. They moved it forward at one point. Um, but yeah, they were, they were basically robbed of like at least maybe a more competitive playoff series if they had uh, lined up with anyone other than Colorado. Like Colorado would have beaten them no matter what because mm-hmm. it was still it was a first time good team. They were comfortably in the playoffs pretty much that entire year too. Like it wasn't that year itself wasn't so Cinderella. Like actually, yeah. the following year was more where they they took a step back in the 0102 season. And uh, that's when the West Coast Express emerged, where Mark Crawford stuck those three players together and Todd Bertuzzi specifically really took off. So that was like a bad team that suddenly got good and played at like a crazy pace in the second half of the season. So that that had more of a Cinderella vibe. And then, of course, they ran into the eventual cup champions in the first round, because <laughs> yep. as we've established, that's what they do. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 2001 was a disappointment because it was like, like you say, there was that sense of relief, like the, finally the Keenan days are behind us and the team is good again. It was just like, you know, like the deflating balloon sound by the time they... They lost all their good players. Kind of going off the point Elliot raised about uh, Na- Messier's effect on Nasland, 2001 playoffs had all those guys not been injured and pushed Colorado maybe to five, maybe to six, who knows, maybe seven, I think would have had like a really good effect on the team uh, and could have made 2002 different. Like, what, what does the world look like if they actually were able to play in those games? Getting, like, a few extra playoff games is so important that you have to, like, blow up your team's chances of ever being competitive <laughs> to, to do I was, it. I was uh, going to make a snarky comment. Um, so, it. yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> let's let's get into the draft stuff because I have a, I have a couple of things on this. So, uh, Elliot alluded to the... Uh, draft wheel thing um that's like a pretty well-known story in canucks lore but um just for iconic first moment yeah for people that aren't aware uh do you yurki do you feel comfortable like just giving a brief summary of that even though i know i don't even i don't know if you were born yet (laughs) i I, I was not okay yeah i I don't know Um, how old you are i just know you're older than me (laughs) yeah i know you were Uh, well no wait you were you said you were in high school in the 90s so yeah that doesn't Yeah, that's Gans. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, so the Canucks and Sabres came into the league at the same time, and uh, Clarence Campbell was the league commissioner at the time. And he, rather than just flipping a coin, which is what they did like when Ottawa and Tampa came in, because I guess they realized that, that two is divisible by two. Uh, <laughs> instead, they, they set up a wheel with, I think it was 12 slots. And... And even... This is the most NHL think, thing ever. <laughs> a wheel... <laughs> You know, if, if you were to ask any five-year-old child, how do you set up this wheel so that as you spin it, it's exciting up until the last moment? They would do it alternating slots, right? It would right. be, you know, even numbers, Canucks, odd numbers, Sabres. I'm pretty sure there's video of this on YouTube, uh, and I think I've only watched it once, but I, what I think is that one through six was one team, and then seven through 12 was the other team. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah which, like, again, why not just flip a coin? Why? Like, why would you <laughs> like, even do Wheel that? of Fortune was already around at this time. Just in case you were wondering if the NHL draft lottery uh, has always been incredibly stupid and impossible to understand. <laughs> yeah, even when it's only between two teams, apparently. <laughs> like, can you imagine if the wheel sort of slowed down as you're just approaching the other team, but it's, like, already comfortably in it? You've killed the excitement of that, like, that last like doot, 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 you know like from the the yeah, prices right wheel absolutely. yeah uh but so what happened anyways that i now i forget who had i think the canucks had one and the sabers 11 yes. i think the canucks were the first half i believe you're correct yeah yeah and and claire so the wheel 
landed on 11 on the Sabres number. Clarence Campbell was very old. I don't know if that factored into it. Um, like he was the guy who oversaw the Richard riots in 1955 in Montreal, to, to give you an example. Yeah. And, uh, and so I don't know if he just didn't see it well or what. And I want to say the, the wheels were color coded too. So like, it's, it's really hard that to even make this mistake, but they, yeah. I'm looking it, at it. It's like all white almost, except for the sevens are red. And oh. it's just, it's just like designed really poorly. Like I wouldn't be able to Shocker. notice either. I mean, it and wouldn't have been televised, not, right? So like it wasn't num- for like a TV audience or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like number 10 isn't, I mean, this might be standard, but isn't like one and zero next to each other. Oh, the one it's, is it's on vertical, top. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Vertical, it's yeah. also not televised. Why would you not just flip a coin? Flip what a coin. the fuck? Or, or just, like, just <laughs> this is like pretend you flip the coin. Honestly, the 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 real like loser coming out of this story to me is the NHL. Like, like this is nineteen seventy, right? It's not like you have Ernst and Young auditing it like you do yeah. now. Like nobody cared, right? Like yeah. these are two franchises in Buffalo, New York. Gee, I wonder and, why and... no one cared. <laughs> um. But uh, yeah, so, so I think Vias is right. It's the, the vertical numbers, I think, is actually what threw him. So yeah. if you're looking at the, the top half of the 11, you just saw the number one. And he announced that the Canucks had won. The Canucks table cheers and celebration. And then I don't know if it was like one of those, like, you know, like the security man whispering in his ear moments or what. But, Oscar you know, Bonner. he sort of did a double take and he's like, oh, no, sorry, it was it was Buffalo. And, you know, it was it was probably the precursor to that famous shot of Trevor Linden after the, the draft lottery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like that look of disbelief. Like, I, I don't know, I guess I've only watched the video <laughs> once, but it was it was the most like I had a perfect beginning to, to the franchise because Buffalo, of course, uh, drafted Gilbert Perot, who was the consensus number one player. The Canucks drafted Dale Talon, who uh, I have I have his hockey who card doesn't know year. how to use a fax machine. It is not. But yeah, to be fair, it didn't exist in 1970. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dale Talon's hockey card says that many, many observers feel that he is just as good as Perot. Now, I was not I was not around at the time, but that is never how I've heard that story told. <laughs> yeah. Like, Gilbert, everyone knew Perot was the number Gilbert Perot, famous for uh being the i believe center on the famous french connection connection. line one of the better lines of the 1970s dale talon most famous for not knowing what day it is and uh costing the chicago blackhawks millions and millions of dollars (laughs) in rfa signings but uh yeah i mean there's there's a lot of like the canucks in the draft is obviously like its whole own episode but um a couple of things that I wanted to point out one uh, in the years, in the three years uh, immediately after the draft lottery rules were changed to make them more random. No team fell in the draft lottery more than the Vancouver Canucks. They're 31 out of 31 teams dropping a combined six spots. That's another one. We all sort of felt anecdotally, but uh, yeah, the numbers, so it's not a lot. Um, Arizona was close with five, but the nearest other teams all only have three. Uh, so, yeah, if you were wondering if their draft luck uh, or their lottery luck, rather, was terrible, you're correct. That um, kind of ended up helping them in a couple. couple it's games. true. In a couple of instances, it really did end up helping them. But regardless, it's, you know, it's still the the principle um, still applies. Um, and uh, they've never had a first round pick or they've never had a first, first overall, overall pick. Sorry, yeah. I always. Which I, I'd love to see the odds on that, because that's actually for a team that was bad back before there was a draft lottery. Like, that's kind of shocking. But they they often had, you know, like like 
one of the things that is sort of on my list, but I can't actually verify is that the Canucks have a tendency to bottom out in, in poor draft years. I don't know yeah. if that's actually true. The the main example I think is is the uh, 97-98 season. So that's the the, the Keenan year that he actually yeah. completed, where their reward for finishing like for going on like massive losing streaks was Brian Allen, who like <laughs> he, probably, he probably was like the he was slotted to go where they took him. It was Absolutely. just a draft year with uh-huh. Cavalier and everyone else, and uh, but. Um, the, the an example where that's not true was 1990, where the Canucks finished second overall, a uh, second worst overall, and mm-hmm. that was like the best draft year in history. But because of the the whole thing with Yarmir Yager, like not willing to play for everyone, or it wasn't clear if he was going to come over, yeah. the, he wasn't really on the table for them. That's one where I, I don't fault the team, and so they end up taking Peter Nedved, who like wasn't horrible. No, but, but still, yeah, but like imagine line. imagine Yager being on the '94 team. Oh, well, like obviously yeah. you can't get Brown passing to Burray, but you have Yager for that entire series. Yeah, but then we also don't have to have that fucking asshole Twitter guy either. So I well, counted as a win. <laughs> Clear win. But so I was just raising that year though, because that bucks the idea of weak draft years. But uh, oh crap! No, actually, oh, you're gonna have to edit this out because I, I forget why I want to do. All right, it, well that's fine. Whatever. Um, it's not. We're certainly not hurting for content. Well, later in that round too, of course, they they also drafted Sean Antosky instead of Keith Kachuk or Martin Brodeur. That's a, a and different they, story. That they one have a fault. real habit of doing that too, which I yeah. know goes back into just like, are they unlucky or are they just bad? But like the the just repeated, uh, like taking Patrick White one uh, slot before uh, David Perron, like stuff like that. Like they have a really bad habit of the next guy being an all-star. <laughs> yes. The the other example where they did bottom out in a weak draft year ended up working out for them because it was the Sedin's draft where they were like the only good put them and Barrett Jackman were like the <laughs> yeah. only good players on Havlat too, I think was that year. But in the first round, it was like a notoriously bad first round. And there they ended up actually having some luck. So, so maybe that's not even the best example, the the bottom mountain weak weak years, but I feel it. Like, has happened in 96 97 which was the first year they missed the playoffs after the kind of like the cup core they drafted i think they drafted 10th and they took brad ference who was like you know a tough hard-nosed defenseman that yeah, back when i, I, remember that. I also yeah. feel like the cities kind of take this thing out of never drafting first overall because you get the scenes at two and three and it's like that's worth the first round like first overall they they yeah. may have gone first overall in a, like if it were like a market economics year they there was just a lot of wheeling and dealing because of the whole the trades that they used to get them and you know atlanta promised to take stefan and stuff so it's hard to say they may have actually kind of like you know with the benefit of hindsight they say that in 2017 the canucks basically got the first overall player it's probably Mm -hmm. quite literally true in the sedan's case so yeah yeah and on that topic too it's not draft related but since the 80s keep coming back up as kind of just like the pit of ultimate despair. <laughs> One thing that I don't think gets enough attention is that the Canucks ended up in the Smythe division, which like was them and the Kings who were nothing special and the Jets. But then they had both Alberta teams, one of which was already good and one of which was on the rise. Yeah. And the reason why I'm raising this as kind of Canucky is because neither of those teams had to go through expansion. The Jets didn't either. But yeah. the... The Oilers were like a 
established WHA team. Mm-hmm. They didn't have all their best players they had in the NHL, but like they they had, they had Gretzky starter. though. Gretzky for <laughs> yeah. for a backgammon game. Yeah, and uh, so they so it was kind of like the the Colorado Avalanche thing of you know some years in advance where you get these teams parachuted into your division. The, the Flames relocated from Atlanta, which is nowhere near the Pacific Northwest, and they get good right around then too. And that's like actually. You know, one of the reasons the Canucks record back then was so terrible is just because they did have these two powerhouses imported into their division, one more so than the other. I, I think Calgary's history is overrated. Of but, course, yeah. Uh, oh, and I know why I brought up 8990 before. It's because that's Canuckish too. The, the Canucks were terrible that year. They had 63 or something points. Yeah. Uh, the Quebec Nordiques had 31 points that year, which you can't even do anymore. <laughs> and, and so, like, like, so in one of the, now, it's, you know, Owen Nolan is probably not the best for us overall draft pick, and that's who Quebec took that year. And that was the Yager draft, so maybe that's not even the best example. We but, also got him at the end of the day. That <laughs> <laughs> trade against him. Uh, but yeah, but in a year where the Canucks, like, realistically, we're, we're hosting the draft, by the way, in 89-92. So that, like, that was the year to draft for us overall. It was a BC place. It wasn't even a hockey arena. People were psyched. You know, Nedved was highly regarded and all that, but but that was the year that the Quebec Nordiques decided to have like a mathematically impossible season. <laughs> That's that is honestly wild. I did not know that. Um, what else? Uh, just because we're we're doing like pretty good for for time. Um, like I'm not I'm not just being like, hey, let's stop because there's lots more to talk about. But what do you have uh, left on your list? Just so we can kind of like uh, that game actually it out. is the end of my list. Oh, um, wow. oh, wow. Perfect. Okay. It, the, the Nordiques themselves becoming the avalanche and being geographically closest to the Canucks division is probably the, 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 the kind of closing theme of that. <laughs> yeah, team. Sure. That, that, that ended up like torpedoing them for another decade. If all of the information that we just laid out in front of you, isn't enough evidence that the Canucks are the worst team period ever period uh, to be a fan of the fact that we were able to fill an entire episode just with this kind of stuff. Um, I wanted to uh, just touch on two more things as we close out. Um, uh, one is if you just like, if you're like me and you really love being a crank and you really want to drive yourself insane, go look at uh, the kind of period sort of between like, 2010 2012 around that time where Aaron Rome got that four game suspension for his hit in the final. And then just look at how the Bruins were, uh, how they were sort of officiated and how player safety uh, dealt with their players who uh, you mean that period of time where Zio Chara tried to decapitate Pacioretty and also the Mace Raymond hit. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are the obvious ones, but there are other ones, oh, too. I'm sure like, there are, but those are the two things that just absolutely stick in my craw. We, we didn't even really delve into the 2011 run, but obviously, you know, like I mentioned, like the permutations and all that and how the Canucks still almost won. But the Bruins themselves were like incredibly healthy for a team that had just gone through. Yep. Yeah. in a bit playoff rounds like they they were missing mark savard like pretty much all year and everyone just sort of forgot about him. But everyone else, like all their best players were in decent shape from what I know and. Maybe one of you can confirm this for me, but I, I don't know if this, what I'm about to say is hundred percent true, but it's close to being true if not, but I believe number one and number two all time in save percentage over a playoff run 
are Tim Thomas in 2011 and Jonathan yeah. Quick in 2012. Yeah. Oh yeah, we, no, yeah, we didn't no, even get correct. into them. Yeah, while we were doing all that, I kept wanting to bring that up about how like not only do we run up against teams that are perfectly designed to to beat us, but but it's also they have these two key players and their goalies that we happen to run into the two greatest goalie performances of all time. Argu- in the modern era, arguably yeah. whatever. While yeah. the Canucks had Roberto Luongo on their roster, right? Like yeah. that could have been them. Okay. Uh, so uh, we will we'll we'll finish off with a couple of more general questions for Yerky. But in closing, these stories have not been embellished, for they need no embellishment. <laughs> <laughs> they are simply, tragically, the story of my life as a short, stocky, oh slow-witted Canucks fan. <laughs> Oh, and also Jake Vertanen died drinking Gamer Girl bathwater that uh, I picked out. <laughs> oh, nice, nice side callback. Like that was it. excellent. I can't wait to send you the meme I'm going to make for. <laughs> yeah, I, awesome. I realize I should be making more like episode title covers. Anyway. Oh yeah, dude. Anytime really, you yeah. want to do it, please do it. Yeah, we need to do our own version of the broadcasts. Uh, you know, vision board. So uh, the way that. I think we've all come to know you, Yerky. Uh, well, for me, uh, it's uh, it's through having some of the best questions in RGS uh, as one of the <laughs> listeners. I was going to say I knew him as the guy who did the songs for RGS. I did do a bunch of them, yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that led us into uh, your comic, Bending on Empty, which I couldn't believe today. Like right before we started recording, I looked up. I can't believe you did more than 100. I can't either, but it's because I didn't think Benning was going to last that long. <laughs> <laughs> he beat you. He, you tired oh, oh, he totally did. Yeah. Game, game and set. We'll see about the match, but game and set to Jim for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't know if I have any direct questions for you about that. I, like, I guess I want to hear about how you came up with it. Where did you get those skills from before? And also, who were your sources? Because like, I, I, it's been a long time since I've looked through them and I realized I wish I like could pull up some of my favorite ones right now but looking through some of the old ones it really is watching things like uh, Lawrence Gilman and even TC Carling realize that they're surrounded by morons all of a sudden is so (laughs) funny to just track through history because that feels like 20 years ago too uh, I feel like I should note on the on the who were your sources question clearly somebody because Lawrence Gilman thought that it was made by someone in the organization. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to even say that, but um, that's news to me. That's interesting. Like, yeah, I, no. Um, wow. For okay, so uh, who knows where that came from? And um, you're hearing it from me, and maybe I made it up. That's that's all I'll say. That's, that's what I'll go. But yeah, so Yerky, I mentioned have it on, on the on when you were on when you were on RGS that people in the league thought. It was so an insider. I, yeah. I, I was never on RGS. It was Jason Botchford who who discussed oh, that. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, oh yeah. Well, it came you know up- what? It, it, it R.I.P. Botch. You literally can't be damaged by this information. <laughs> um, it was Lawrence Gilman was the person who thought, "Fuck it, whatever. I'll break news. I don't give a shit." <laughs> <laughs> this is why nobody tells me anything anymore. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's so. Jason Botcher had discussed it actually with with uh, Brof and Halford on a TSN brief spot, or at least the part that I listened to was brief, uh, following the whole Brian Colangelo burner account thing where oh, yeah. he, he used me as an example of, you know, people asking about 
you know, is it possible that I'm somebody within the organization? Um, and, and of course, I was the assistant GM for about 10 years. Uh, no, uh, no, it's... Uh, I, I oh, you played not, in the team, not... You didn't run yes, the team. Yes, yes. I, I, well, I, yeah, Dana Merzen and I formed, uh, you know, really... You know, <laughs> for, for many years. Um, and uh, so Botch, um, you know, told Halford Bruff that he didn't believe that I was, although... I understand, I think it was Justin told me that, or, or well, I guess it was what he was saying when he was in that appearance too, that mm-hmm. he did harbor some doubts. Um, I, I don't work for the team. Um, my, <laughs> yeah, sources, my sources are paying attention to the blindingly obvious, I want to say. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, you look at the way that these guys, particularly Benning and Wisebrod, interact, and you look at especially the holdovers from the last regime, and so I'm not surprised that kind of Gilman was the one thinking about this how how do you not feel that like you're being pranked if you're like a semi-intelligent person working in this organization <laughs> right it's it, it, like it must feel like you're on a sitcom when your owner who's ostensibly like a billionaire who makes you know business decisions that make him lots of money thinks that what he's doing is working when it's not like like this isn't some esoteric science right like the team sucks and you know, <laughs> every, everything they try to do backfires like spectacularly and the only reason why there's sort of anything salvageable from it is because the nhl draft system rewards failure and yeah. it, would be, it would be one thing if the team was intentionally rebuilding and like uh, amassing futures, but they never did that, right? You know, any, any talk about like rebuilding on the fly or, you know, you know, quietly rebuilding or the heavy lifting, that's all revisionist history. The team was never rebuilding. It never Absolutely had like a, mm-hmm. a surplus. And so, yeah, so sometimes it works because the NHL draft system is to, to each according to his need and each according to their ability. And so <laughs> here you have it. Yeah, yeah, you suck by mistake and you get rewarded for it. That is not a credit to the guy so in charge. You and structurally I that, fall up the stairs. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it's- I feel, I feel that everyone around him must see that, right? Like they they had just gone through the, the team's best period in its history, which for whatever reason drives certain guys on Canucks Twitter just bonkers, right? Like having had a competent forward thinking team was just the worst, right? <laughs> like like how, how could they like go look at their families and Thanksgiving with a team that's good? Like what are they going to talk about? It's, it's not, I don't get any of these phenomena, but presumably, and you, you do, there are, I guess, Things, there are things that get out, I guess, about how management works. I'm not saying I have any inside sources, but you hear them from other people who do have inside sources. So you put that together with what it just sort of seems on its surface and you start imagining what's happening behind the scenes. I thought I was like exaggerating greatly and apparently I wasn't. <laughs> apparently that's kind of like what it actually, how yeah. it actually happens behind the curtain. I will that's, say that's astounding to me. As someone who, you know, like I, I, I am, I think like I'm the, the closest a person who, who makes content like yours can get to knowing what goes on behind the scenes before it like starts to sound alarm bells, I guess, basically. Um, but like as somebody who, you know, does like, believe it or not, like hear quite a lot of stuff about what happens uh, behind the scenes and does not immediately blurt out all of it and has actually managed to keep some of it, you know, behind closed doors or whatever. Like, yeah, uh, NHL GMs and execs and stuff like the ones that are smart know 
even more than you think they do about the stupid ones. And, they have to, right? And yeah, the stupid ones them. are as stupid as you think they are. Like a hundred percent. No they're, question. Like, they're all former players. I, I I was talking to my wife about this the other day, and she was astounded when I told her that all the coaches and GMs are former players. Like yeah. it's I don't know. <laughs> you know, imagine you you did that in every industry. It just. <laughs> Yeah. As long as you follow the general rule about coaching, which is like the guys who are actually good are terrible coaches, but the guys yeah, who have yeah. to work for it are the best coaches. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Like mm-hmm. I once get you follow that, but... that, yeah, the coaches should be players and the GM should be guys who know how to, I don't know, not have executive to manage. tie yeah, their own yeah, shoes. Managers. Yeah. yeah. Just how about somebody who knows how to tie their own shoes? That'd be you don't great. need to puts, tie with the Velcro shoe. Guys. I was going to say that's true. And I was going to say that puts you out of the running Vias actually. It's true. It's true. Hey, I laced them up. <laughs> don't no, forget. That's right. To, to answer your earlier question though, Vias, uh, the, like the Genesis was, I, I, I was not, those of those who like kind of knew me from message boards or whatever knows, know that I, I just like betting right away. I, from like the, the 2014 draft and the moves around that, right? It was the Vertana pick, it was the Kessler trade. I didn't like the Garrison trade either at the time, even though that was sort of vindicated later. And all those things together, plus, I know it's mean to say, but the way he talks, because yeah. you, you, mm-hmm. you can absolutely read into those sorts of things. You can, mm-hmm. you can learn a lot about people by conversing with them, obviously. Like that's not, that's not like ableist to say. And yeah, so no. all that together was like, uh, my God, what have we done? Like what they've hired this guy who seems like a total nincompoop, but you figure, cause again, I, we didn't know as much about Aquilini back then. You figured this will, mm-hmm. it'll be Keenan over again. This will be one and done maybe two years at most. I kind of thought the team would be crappy right away too, which maybe would have helped if they hadn't made the playoffs in, in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, when, especially after that one, again, you know, they signed Erickson, it's a colossal flop and Brandon Sutter is like signed to just the most insane. First deal retroactive, no movement or no trade clause. Yeah. And then there's just like the, the shooting themselves in the foot with Verbata, like uh, and signing Proster or trading for Proster, all this stuff that went on like very early in the regime. You just figure like nobody with half a brain can can sit back and not laugh at this, right? Like it, it just looks like a bunch of kindergartners having been given an $800 million franchise to play with. And so I figured it was going to be over soon. And then like especially late in the 15-16 season when it wasn't. I think ironically the the straw that broke the camel's back was probably the Shankaric trade because it seems so stupid, right? It seems so like gratuitous when it happened where it's like, why, why, why would you trade away one of the teams like only prospects left? Mm-hmm. And and I think that was kind of like, you know what? I, I, I want to make fun of this guy like, <laughs> because it sort of helps us get through the lean years. And uh, so I just decided like I... I didn't start at the start, I suppose. I used to make, uh, if you know the website, crack.com. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, yeah. So, right, like the spiritual successor to like the, the 1970s Mad Magazine rival. So they have a, most of what they do is list-based articles. It's like, you know, seven, seven things yeah. you didn't know about, whatever. Yeah. They do these competitions called photoplasties where they'll give you a theme and then you put together, like you Photoshop together kind of a, a joke picture that fits the theme. So that's where I first started doing this kind of thing. And I, I'd stopped for a while because I have two kids and it takes some time. And at this point, I didn't think this was going to be like a several years long hobby that took even more work. <laughs> but, uh, but I just, I, I was going to throw out one as a joke and I, I posted it, I think on HF boards. Uh, and then I posted it to Twitter. And at this point I had like, I think 30 followers at, at most. 
Um, but I tweeted it at Jason Botchford and he retweeted it. Uh, he quote tweeted it with the word wow. <laughs> and, uh, and so I saw I had some traction. So I started doing a couple more and uh, it gradually did develop a bit more of a following. I still um, never a giant one, but my understanding from what, what Botch in particular was saying is that people around the league do read it. And a number of sources, which I you know won't divulge on this show, have told me that people who I, I didn't think would ever have thought to look at it did, which uh, made me very excited to know that. I don't know if you know satire is fun, but it can also be. I guess I don't want to say powerful because I'm not overstating <laughs> yeah, the impact of like that. a silly comic that I do. But if if nothing else, it's a lot easier to retweet something like that rather than like an impassioned plea for reason. Yes, and uh, and so it makes like a sound bite and it makes it digestible and. You know, if, if other folks, including another fan bases, get to see stuff like this and kind of at least empathize a bit with what we're going through or, or at least expressing their disbelief very publicly that like a franchise could be run this way, then I feel I've done my part. So uh, <laughs> it's I've, re- I've sort of retired it now. The COVID edition, when the season got canceled last year or suspended, ended up being the final farewell. Part of me, again, sort of maybe believed that Benning's term was coming to an end anyway. But yeah. I sort of believe that every year. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, do you think, I feel like this is a nice note to end on. Uh, do you think you'll ever bring it back? Like uh, just once? I would say one final edition when Benning is finally gone, if like I'm alive. Um, <laughs> that's, Lesser Canucks fans hope for one cup before they die. You're only <laughs> hoping for Benning getting fired. Before one more Benning on empty before I, just one before I die. I mean, <laughs> just like one I, before I die. <laughs> I'm older than you guys, but I'm substantially younger than Jim. So I have that going for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess if that, yeah, that, that's probably almost guaranteed that I'll do, I think one sort of closing chapter. Of course. Um, I'm, I'm worried because it'll come under like circumstance. We, we never even anticipated like the franchise yeah. relocating or, or, <laughs> or like, you know, Benning has stepped down for health reasons and wise broads taken over or something like funny. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, I mean, I all this time, I, I I actually had commissioned somebody on Fiverr to uh, to sing a song that was going to be a parody of uh, the end of the world as we know it by R.E.M. with just like like a litany of everything that happened in the betting regime. This was like in like twenty seventeen wow. or eighteen. Wow. <laughs> like I, I I I didn't write this song to be to be fair, and with like yeah. seven years of track record rather than three or four, it would be like a really daunting task. Yes. So I don't know if I'll go that route, but I always think we'll it <laughs> some sort of swan song, right? Like to to kind of cap it all. I just could not believe, like at this point, if it if it finally does happen, I feel it's going to be with such a whimper. Like everyone yeah, will just be same. so exhausted from it, and and like I say, maybe it'll be out of like Aquilini's hands, and it only happened because some other greater event has overtaken it, and. Yeah. And who knows, there'll be the instability and everyone's going to be kind of uneasy about the direction. I, I don't want to speculate, but like I, I, I really thought you, it though. was going to be like 2016. It'll be done. We'll feel like it's like, you know, like the, the tanks have finally arrived to liberate the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there'll be the like tanks. A, <laughs> uh, that wasn't supposed to be a pun, but it's I know, but <laughs> um, and, uh, but now, yeah, I, 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 we're all just so exhausted, right? Like, yeah it's it's gonna be hard to get up for it like mm. to the point where you have folks on the kind of like the, the gilla side of the debate who are like looking to make concessions that don't even make sense because they want some semblance of like harmony in the fan base at Absolutely. this point because we're all just so tired of it um that's been me for the past like two years 
I'm just so tired of shitting on like people think I'm so negative and it's like, no, I'm so tired of I'm so tired of shitting on them that like I didn't have the energy to torch them over their offseason this year. (laughs) So I was just like, ah, it could be a lot worse, you know, which is like if you're saying that about a guy who's been your GM for seven seasons, it's not good, man. It's so 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 the the very long answer is that I I think there will be at least one more product to come, mm. if nothing else, like just to to officially close the series, like to say I had been, totally. now is the end, even though it's I guess blindingly obvious if if Benning is gone. But I did make sure to leave it at least somewhat ambiguous, like as mm. some sort of Andy Kaufman style prank, maybe <laughs> that like like just when he thought it was over, it's I'll, I'll bring it back at like like twenty thirty eight or something. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's great. Well, um, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Absolutely. I knew you would be a great guest, but um, this uh, actually exceeded my expectations for the episode. So uh, I have to I thank you from the bottom of my heart for appearing on this show with us in your uh, late time zone. It's very, very late where you are. So um, thanks a lot, Yerky. Where can the good people find you? Uh, so on Twitter, I am at Yerky21, J-Y-R-K-I-21, if you don't speak Finnish or you don't remember Yerky Lume. Uh, the Betting on Empty archives are on a Tumblr, which is just bettingonempty.tumblr.com, or the at Betting on Empty Twitter account uh, can lead you there as well. Uh, yeah, that's that's mostly it. Fantastic. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at McDonald. You can follow me at Vyasaren. You can follow me at Moose Kayak. And... Uh, Please don't forget to follow the pod at Roxy Fever. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, I have to say you should really be subscribing to the Patreon uh, because this is pretty much what we do. In fact, there will probably be full length episodes on at least like three or four of the things we talked about this week (laughs) at some point down the line. Um, So if you enjoy these like trips down memory lane and into the sort of like cult uh you know hits of of canucks history definitely subscribe to the patreon we have um an episode coming out uh in very short order about my favorite canuck of all time tom sestito so uh keep an eye out for that and um please for the love of god direct your hate mail to at canucks on twitter (laughs) 